This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. It's crazy. Every once in a while, I think we all just need to go take a break and go... I don't know why I did it, but it just, I guess it came natural. But I went and when I was off on my vacation, I went to uh, the Reagan Museum, Presidential Museum. I also, for some odd reason, chose of all movies to watch a three and a half hour movie of Gandhi. I watched. And, well, it took like a day because <laughs> I kept being interrupted. But anyway, what I learned um, – we we've we this is your life folks this is your world this is this is up to you and um well like we just learned from dr rand we all have techniques we all have you know policies we all have paradigms that we're going to govern our govern our lives by and and you have to decide what yours is and it doesn't have to be absolute i mean it doesn't have to be that you are always um charitable to the person kicking you in the teeth, but it, you might need to be charitable to yourself. So the principle, I think, can work. It just may not work the way you think it's going to work. Um, so be open and willing to, to look deeper into your principles, into your beliefs. One of the reasons I, I was um, taken aback is because to see the parallel of a Ronald Reagan who kind of knew that he deep in his heart had this belief that he was going to impact people. And he wanted to impact people um, for good. And then combine that with a Gandhi who had this principle-centered way of, of seeing life that no matter what, you're going to do the hard thing and you just do it. And you don't do it because it's easy. You do it because it's hard and you do it. Um, I also at the, at the Ronald Reagan Museum, they, they had a, a, a show going on that was from the Vatican as well. And I saw a wonderful uh, painting of Mother Teresa – and Pope John Paul that I thought, oh, what a beautiful setting that was. And, and this, this painting was incredible. But here's a quote that, again, goes back to Mother Teresa. Um, and it's just a basic, it's a basic concept. People are often unreasonable, irrational, self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity, happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have, and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. So let's just do what's right and just do it because it's right and trust the principles to deliver the results we need. Do it anyway. It's always between you and God anyway, right? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So I do a lot of coaching of couples, and I sit down. We do what we can to help them learn to connect and stay connected once they're married. And a lot of people think it should just be easier than it than it really is. It, I mean, true love means it should just come easier, right? Well, no, not always. 
it's hard. And one area that I found um, a lot of people are struggling with is they want to have a hobby or they do have a hobby and they can't they don't necessarily share it with their partner. Uh, it might be easy to love your husband's fishing when you're dating your boyfriend and you're loving each other and you, it's the cutest thing because he wants to go fishing and you want to fish with him because you're dating and it's exciting and you can go out there and while you're out there fishing, you're talking and it's so fun. But that doesn't always last. Very few couples I know are sharing the hobbies that uh, that they that they could be sharing in life. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about Maybe one way to find um, some time to be together is if you could find a way to, to leverage your hobbies, your toys, your leisure time in a way that uh, you could actually do some fun stuff together. For example, here's some rules for you. Remember, it takes energy to make passion, right? So if your marriage is running out of passion, then you got to have energy. And apparently, as we learned this last weekend, there's a lot of people using Pokemon Go as a as a great partner building activity. My daughter, my son-in-law rode their bikes with their baby in tow and went all over their town playing a silly little game together. But um, what it did is it created some energy. It created some passion. They were sharing something. I have family that play tennis every you know day, every week together and uh, as a couple, and it creates some energy. It allows them to not only go do what they both love to do, but to do it together. They can play against other teams. It creates some uh, fun teams um, activities, but also dating opportunities. So if you want some more energy or more passion in your marriage, then you got to figure out a way to invest energy together. Another thing you can do is to do what you can do together, not what you can't, um, as is obvious, right? At some point, you're going to have to give your limited energy on something. So the dilemma is one person might be a better bicyclist than the other. So honestly, I don't want to ride with you because you ride too fast or you ride too slow. And then we spend our entire time fighting about what we can't do. But maybe there are ways that we can find something that we can do together. Maybe we can't necessarily do our long ride of our bicycles together, but we can go on a bike ride, a short bike ride every every couple days. There might be something that um, you like, that I like. It might simply be that you, you may not love being outdoors and camping but maybe we rent a trailer and you stay in the trailer and we, we go camping via trailer instead of roughing it out in the out in the backwoods. Another goal or another tool that might help us to bridge our hobbies so that we can have some shared hobbies together is um, make up new things together. Make your marriage not be just what it's always been, but maybe there's something that you can do together that you've never done. So go try some new things. Maybe it's trying new restaurants every week. Maybe it's something about, uh, you know, going out um, and and trying a, a club or a dancing activity or a golf club program or a – I mean, there's so many opportunities in this crazy country we live in. There's. Are you telling me there's nothing you two can't go find that you'd both be willing to try? It also might mean you may need to leave some of the, you know, your must-nots aside. If you're somebody that says, I will never go hunting, you might want to set that aside. My rule is try everything twice, at least twice. Try it. Just try it. If it's legal, if it's ethical, if it's moral, try it. Remember, you also don't need to like it to do it. 
um, there's a lot of things in our lives we don't like doing, but they're important to do. And that is just as true in our marriages. I may not love doing some of the things my wife loves to do, but I, I can still like it because I'm with her. And I can go find some benefit, if even just the benefit is making our marriage better. You don't have to love everything, folks, in life to make it worthwhile. Anyway, that's a few tips for you to help you uh, bridge some of your hobbies, your habits, your goals with your partner. Got to start somewhere. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So when you are sitting there and you think, I'm such a loser, such a loser, what part of you is, is saying that? Right? Is that your brain? Is that your mind? Is that your consciousness, which Dr. Alexander kept bringing up? I call it spirit. What or is it your spirit? What what which? What do you call it? I personally don't believe that your spirit, that consciousness of who you are, that connection to that higher power in the world. I don't believe that that is here to tell you you're fat. Well, no, but my spirit wants me to get healthy. Sure. So your spirit would prompt health. It wouldn't create a negative sense of self like you're fat. That's, I believe, your mind's job. Your mind is this idea of who you think you are because of what you've experienced through this life. Your mind is not who you are either. You're not just a boy or a girl. You're not just smart or mm, not so smart but super creative. Whatever your parents told you – um, and everyone else reflected on you as you're growing up. To me, that becomes part of your mind. And the battle becomes this battle between your mind that's trying to control your body or your spirit that's trying to control your body. Now, these are just my views, right? But I found a lot of peace knowing that I can start to recognize the difference. So when I, I sit there and I get mad at somebody and I'm getting more and more mad and I think – and I have to break that person down into – little parts like you're a jerk and you're petty and you don't even have a job and blankety blank. The minute I'm doing that, I'm not in my spirit or as Dr. Alexander would call it, you're not in your consciousness. You are, you're in your mind and your mind feels a need to battle everyone around you because there's only so many resources here, right? And your job, you need as many of them as you can to provide safety for your body. You've got to be more popular than everyone else and prettier and more powerful. And if you don't, oh, what are you? You're just a loser. That's all your mind. So when I work with my clients every day, uh, if I can't get them to start to distinguish between their mind and their spirit or their mind and their consciousness, as soon as they can see the difference between the two, holy cow, it changes everything. That is what I think he's referring to when he calls it going in, go inside, going in you. And I always say, just look to God. If your God came in, and truly, if, if you believe in a God and, and that God came and sat down right next to you, tell me what you'd complain about. Well, but Donald Trump, blankety blank, blank, blank. And Ted Cruz, holy cow. Hillary, so is Hillary guilty or not? You wouldn't go to there on any of that. None of that would matter to you. What would matter? Ah, your family, your friends, your connection, who you need to serve, how you need to be better to serve with your God, hand in hand, to make things better. That's probably where we'd go. Anyway, it's just my view. 
little coach's corner for you. Body, mind, and spirit. Try to distinguish between your spirit and your body and your mind. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the presidential race has brought to light the country's frustration with current economic state. And while wages are up and the slow growth of the economy looks promising, many are still falling behind. Our guest today, Rana Faruhar, uh, author of Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, joins us to tell us more about our nation's trends towards financialization and the damage that it has caused. Uh, Rana, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. Honored to have you. I think, oh, this topic is so needed. Where have you been, (laughs) Rana? Oh, I've been here. Seriously. (laughs) Don't you think, I? this is what I've been talking about. I think this is why so many kind of just middle Americans are are so frustrated. Because everyone's getting rich except 80% of America. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, the reason I got interested in writing this book was I'm a business and financial journalist. And after the financial crisis, I watched as the markets were, you know, climbing to record highs and the rich seemed to be doing very well. You know, I live in New York City. I see a lot of very wealthy people around me all the time. But, you know, I grew up in rural Indiana. I spend a lot of time in middle America. And I could just see that Main Street across the country was not feeling this recovery. And I wanted to understand why. And my research led me to this idea that basically the financial system itself has begun to choke off our growth and our prosperity. And that's it's, it's a very weird idea because actually, if you look back to the history of capitalism, the financial markets were set up to serve Main Street. Right. They're supposed to they're supposed to take all of our savings in the form of bank deposits and lend it out to businesses, which then create jobs and growth and prosperity. But that's not happening. So the killer stat in my book, if you will, is that only about 15% of all the money uh, sloshing around America's financial financial institutions is actually being invested in Main Street business. What? And that's a big problem. Yeah, because they, then they don't have access to cash. They, and a lot of them don't have cash flow, but they go get the cash, but then they have to pay it back at such a big uh, cost that, that they themselves as business people aren't making anything. Right. I mean, it's it's a crazy thing because our financial system has become the tail that wags the dog. You know, the financial services are, are just that. They're services. They're set up to serve other businesses. Right. That was the idea. Um, and, and really, that's how the system worked up until about the 1980s, at which point the model began changing pretty radically. And it's interesting because since the 1980s, our growth, our trend growth as a nation has actually slowed. You know, I mean, we we are growing much more slowly than we were, say, in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And my book says that this is a big part of that. Hmm. You one of the things that's weird about your point um, is you need money, right, to make money. Yeah. But it seems like now what's happening is the whole goal is just to make the money lenders money. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting because if you look at, again, what's happened since the 1980s, so the financial services industry has nearly uh, tripled in size over that period. And 
they've begun to take the majority of corporate profits. So if you look at the financial services industry, it creates only 4% of all American jobs. Mm-hmm. It takes 25% of all American corporate profits. Wow. That is a lot of economic oxygen that is being taken out of the room by one industry and is choking off the growth of other industries. Because – and that's – if I'm a business person, I need that – more of that 25 percent to put back into research and development, to put back more into innovation, to hire more people. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the other perverse effects of the rise of finance is that the markets have begun to control what business people do. So if you look at the pressure that the average CEO of a public company in America is under, you know, you 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 go out, um, you're trying to sell your story to Wall Street. If they don't like your story, if you're not jacking up profits and and your share price quarter after quarter, mm. you're out of there. You're going to get fired. I mean, the average tenure of a CEO in America today is three years. Um, and that's just not enough time for them to take the kinds of decisions, the long-term decisions they need um, to make the investments to really grow business for the future. Um, and another interesting thing is that, again, since finance began really taking off the 1980s, um, the behavior of all corporations in America has have changed. So businesses in all industries have now started to act like banks. They get more money from just moving money around, right. from hedging, from tax optimization, from trading than they did 40 years ago. So there's this sense that we should all act like bankers, and I think it's really undermining our economy. Yeah, we're just becoming a bunch of banks. Um, yeah. Which is funny, too, because uh, the too-big-to-fail bank idea, which was, you know, the, the, co- the, the lack of control and oversight on the financial markets cost us so much, and yet mm-hmm. but there, there's something, there's an underlying issue. What I hear you're saying, though, is, Everything they're doing is legal and, and I guess more or less ethical – well, maybe not ethical, but legal. But, but it's not necessarily good for the country or the businesses. Right. I'm laughing because it's funny. Yeah, much of it is legal. You could argue ethical. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but what's interesting is that you know, many of the practices that have become very commonplace didn't used to be legal. So you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is something called share buybacks. Now, this is when a company goes out into the public market and buys back their own stock. And this used to be illegal up until 1982. It was considered market manipulation. Well, this is now normal business. It's a practice that companies use to artificially jack up the share price of their stock when there's nothing really happening uh, in the underlying growth story. We have had two years, uh, 2015, 2016 have seen, and actually 2014 as well, have seen record numbers of share buybacks. So basically, companies are not creating real growth at Main Street level. They're creating artificial financialized growth. And what this does is it creates the kind of market bubble that we had back in 1999, back in 2007 in the run-up to the subprime crisis and the Great Recession. This is a really unhealthy thing for America because, of course, when those bubbles burst, we all suffer. You know, um, people, people, their portfolios go down, the value of their homes goes down, and it's a real issue. And by the way, as finance has gotten bigger, the number of financial crises um, has, has greatly increased. So we're dealing with this on a much, much more frequent basis than we used to in the past. Are a lot of the high-tech, uh, 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 the... 
I don't know, I don't want to name names, but are a lot of the high-tech companies doing this because the ones that everyone talks about are so overinflated in value? Well, yeah. In fact, the lead chapter of my book talks a little bit about Apple, yeah. which um, it's interesting because so Apple is, you know, the one of the most loved, most prosperous, most successful companies in history. But it's interesting because you could argue, and I, I do argue, that they haven't really invented any groundbreaking new technology since Steve Jobs, the founder, passed away in 2011. Now, um, the current CEO, Tim Cook, pays a lot of attention to the balance sheet and to sort of financial manipulations. And so over the last few years, this company has handed back tens of billions of dollars to um, the biggest investors in the form of these share buybacks. And they, what's amazing is they have borrowed money to do it. Now, Apple has about $200 billion wow. worth of cash. <laughs> Sitting in bank accounts, many of them, by the way, overseas yeah. in, ta- in tax havens because they don't want to bring that money back and pay the fairly high U.S. corporate tax rate on it. So instead, they're borrowing money here at home, going into debt to pay back people like Carl Icahn. This is not money that's going into building new factories or enhancing R&D. This is going to make the top 10 percent of the population in America that owns 80 percent of the top stock richer. And to me, that's just a bizarre system. You've got tons of cash, you borrow cash, you hand it back to the wealthiest people in the country without creating any real underlying growth. And to me, the math just doesn't add up. Eventually, um, you know, that that stymies your economic growth. You mean Donald Trump's Carl Icahn? (laughs) Wow. Oh, my heavens. How weird. No, but I guess that's the point you're making is how how backwards this is for business. And yeah. and so if business is more worried about the Carl Icons and and just, you know, the ma- making the stock price l- stay up and look good mm-hmm. even if it's, you know, in you know, overinflated um versus jobs, no wonder yeah. our jobs market really is pretty dismal. I mean every, I mean I guess the numbers are supposedly okay, but it seems like there's a lot of people that are angry. Well, that's for sure. I mean, and last Friday's jobs numbers were actually a bit of a disappointment. Right. What's what's interesting is that the whole nature of employment in the country has changed. I mean, you know this. We all feel this in our in our home communities. Um, a lot of very high quality jobs have gone elsewhere, uh, which is part of this process of financialization because uh, the markets want to send things wherever it's cheapest. Um, but that's not necessarily best for local economies. And I'm arguing that actually there are other models. You know, there are other countries that do this differently. In Germany, for example, you have a system where uh, business is still more in charge than the financial markets. And so you have businesses that will pay relatively high labor rates and keep jobs at home and really keep quality incredibly high, which then allows them to charge higher prices for goods. And that economy works, and it actually enriches local populations. And I'm arguing, particularly in my solutions chapter, that we need to get back to to that sort of a model. Oh, yeah. Man, you've got a lot of good arguments. We've got to take a break, Rana. We're speaking with Rana Faruhar, who is the author of the book Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. She she speaks regularly on CNN as a global economic analyst. She also is um, the uh, assistant managing editor at Time and the magazine's economics columnist we're honored to have her we're going to take a break come back continue this discussion about the rise of finance and the fall of american business stick with us this is the matt townsend show
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you you hear all of the frustration, you know, people fighting at a presidential event. And uh, Bernie Sanders screaming over and over about Wall Street, Wall Street, Wall Street. Well, uh, who better to, to teach us all what's going on on Wall Street and uh, business than uh, Rana Faruhar. Rana is the author of the book Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. She is the assistant managing editor at Time and the magazine's economics columnist. She um, she's, she's the real deal, for heaven's sake. She also appears regularly on <laughs> CNN, and she at least... For once has a clue. I don't have a clue. So I need you here to help us, Rana. <laughs> I don't know. I think you sound like you've got a clue. I mean, I, you know, what's interesting is I think a lot of people, you know, living in the real world on Main Street uh, throughout America do have a clue. I mean, they recognize that something is profoundly wrong with the way our economy is working. Right. And we've been sold a line in the last 40 years that the markets know best and that the markets are up, you know, everything's fine. We should all be happy. And that's just not the case. And, um, you know, you mentioned folks fighting at a Trump rally, Bernie Sanders. And I actually think that my my book goes a long way towards explaining both the Trump and the Sanders phenomenon, yeah. which to me are in some ways different sides of the same coin. It's about people being really disenchanted with establishment politics. Well, why are they disenchanted? Because they see this, uh, decisions having been taken across both Republican and Democratic administrations over the last several decades that haven't helped Main Street but have helped Wall Street. Exactly. And we need to bridge that gap. I mean, we, the next president, whoever it is, has got to address this issue. Is Because the role of government is enormous. Um, you know, government was asleep at the watch and mm-hmm. and, and, and that, you know, caused a, a a catastrophe economically, but it also seems like we're just setting ourselves up for it again. What what, what is well, the role of government in this? Well, this isn't so. This isn't a really interesting point. So, uh, you know, a lot of people have blamed bankers about the financial crisis and a lot of the bad behaviors that we've seen in the last few years, and certainly some of them deserve blame. But at the end of the day, Washington is the arbiter of what happens on Wall Street, right? I mean, politicians can regulate the markets. They can right. they can also, you know, not just use regulation, but they can craft um, checks and balances and incentives through the tax code that, that encourage institutions and people to do the right things rather than the wrong things. But one of the big problems, and I also look at this in my book, is that the financial power of Wall Street has become such that uh, if you look at this election cycle, um, the top out of the top ten individual political donors, six of them are hedge funders. Wow! So you've got one industry. I mean, every year, big big finance basically jockeys with big pharma for who's going to be the single biggest industry donor to Washington. So you have a tremendous amount of financial capture of of what I call cognitive capture, where Wall Street has the it has the, the ear of politicians. You know, I mean, if you just look at how the Dodd-Frank financial regulation was crafted in the wake of 2008 in the financial crisis, over 90 percent of all the meetings about that regulation were taken with Wall Street bankers themselves. Wow. So, you know, if you wonder why things turned out the way they did, it's because Wall Street was the biggest voice in the room. And we really need to address that problem. And one of the things I want to do with my book is 
is say we need a much bigger group of stakeholders uh, in the arena talking about this. And, and it's funny, I'll just say one more thing, which is that the moment that I knew I needed to write this book was during an off-the-record conversation that I had with um, a former Obama administration official who was talking, uh, had had a role in the, the bailouts and in um, the, the, the sort of rebound from the financial crisis. And we were talking about uh, how regulation should be crafted. And I pointed out that one of the most contentious parts of regulation, something called the Volcker Rule, which was designed to separate risky trading from plain vanilla lending. It was a very important piece of regulation. But 93% of the meetings about that had been taken with Wall Street bankers. Oh, wow. And the, and the official looked at me, and he looked at me with a, with a truly confused look on his face and said, well, who else should we have been speaking to? And I just oh. thought, wow. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, unbelievable. I, I need to I need to write a book about this because if you don't know who you should be speaking, exactly, <laughs> we we got a problem here. Oh, see um, that's 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 again the problem is too. Then we have I guess new business students graduating from business school, you know, going to New York, working with these firms, and this just keeps getting perpetuated and growing and growing. Why wouldn't you want to go make money? Well, that's it. And I actually have a chapter in my book on business education as well. And it's interesting because a lot of the CEOs that I speak to these days say, we can't find the right talent that we need from business schools. And I say, well, why is that? And they say, well, because business schools are basically teaching finance. They're not teaching business. They're teaching students how to move money around on a balance sheet. They're not teaching them how to really innovate and Mm. learn particular industries and, and think creatively. And, you know, it's a very old-fashioned way of thinking about how to run a business. It used to be that everybody was told, you know, marshal your capital, cut costs, guard your money at all costs. Right. The, the, the world the world is awash in money right now. You know, I mean, there there's actually the Federal Reserve Bank of America has put $4 trillion into the economy since 2008. There's money sloshing around everywhere. But what's harder to find is real skill, real human talent, um, people that can think creatively. And so... Businesses need a totally different kind of leadership of executives, and business schools are still teaching finance, finance 101, and they're not churning out the talent that we need to really create the next generation of business growth in this country. Yeah, BYU has the Marriott School here, and mm. it's a great top-notch uh program, especially MBA program. But the funny mm-hmm. thing is finance is the hardest one to get into because everyone well, everyone wants to be a part of it. Well, right. And, you know, you can't blame these kids because so many of them will come out. Uh, I don't know what the cost of BYU is, but many around the country, many will come out with, with such um, debt and so many student loans that they, mm. you know, they have to go where the money is. Yeah, got to pay it off. is in finance. And that's, and that's what's really interesting. I think that, you know, getting back to that finance creates 4% of jobs but takes 25% of profits. We need to put that profit share a little more evenly around the, the, the rest of the different areas of business in this country. And, and so you really see it's, it's not just a government issue or just a big business or a Wall Street issue. Also, Main Street business, uh, we're, we're not necessarily just exercising good old-fashioned business skills. It's all money movement. Well, a lot of industries, and you know, I think that the bigger companies do more of this. I think small and mid-sized companies do still tend to be a little more grassroots, a little more focused on their knitting. Um, but if you look from the 80s until now, 
um, across all industries in America, businesses are getting about five times as much revenue as they did in 1980 from just moving money around. Wow. So this puts us, and the other thing I, I think is very important, this puts us at a real disadvantage on the international landscape because a lot of the new companies coming up from the emerging markets, from China, from India, they're run by, um, by families or they're run by the state and they can take a much longer term view. They can think out over 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, whereas American businesses are under so much pressure to just think for the quarter. Now, the one exception, and this is a very interesting exception, it's almost the exception that proves the rule, is family businesses in America. If you look at private businesses, and in particular family-owned businesses, they invest about twice as much on Main Street as public competitors do. And what that tells me is they're able to do that. They see opportunities in their communities and they are able to make those investments because they don't have Wall Street pressure on them. And I think that's a really interesting contrast. Hmm. Like crowd, like what about crowdfunding? What about some of these companies that are coming up through, I mean, you can crowdfund, I guess it's called crowdfunding, your funeral now or your wedding. And I mean, it's, it's still, everyone's still looking for money, but I guess money with different ties, money's money with different yeah. commitments. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, crowdsourcing falls under this area uh, of finance called fintech. It's the combination of finance and technology. And I think this is a really interesting area to watch. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation here. Um, you're seeing companies that are really coming in and, and saying, yes, small and mid-sized businesses and individuals need capital. Let's find some innovative new ways to provide it. And, you know, there's going to be there's going to be some that will succeed. There's going to be some that will fail and be problematic. But I think it's great that there's a whole new area that is challenging the established um, business model in banking. Right. We definitely need something different. But I guess what will still happen is, you know, if you have business savvy and sense, you grow your business, you get it big enough, then you do an IPO and then Wall Street comes in. (laughs) And then they just take over. That's right. And there's this wonderful Stanford study that I quote in my book that if you look at um, big tech companies before they go public and after they go public, innovation in those companies after they go public falls off by about 40 percent because they they can't make those investments in R&D anymore. They have to start paying back the shareholders, like I was saying before. Yes, the death of the company. Um, That sounds really (laughs) bad, Rana. Uh, it does. I've got some. I have a solutions chapter, though. Okay, I, what? Give us some solutions. Good. What and and what can we do? Yeah. Well, so uh, one solution. I'll I'll say first um, one practical solution. There's so much we could do with the tax code. I mean, we have a tax code in this country that subsidizes debt and encourages debt over equity and savings and investment. And that's at both the consumer level and at the corporate level. So it's the reason why people are able to buy more house than they really need and write it off their taxes. It's Mm. the reason that companies are able to take on lots of debt that then blows up and tanks the company and people lose their jobs. So we could do a lot to change the tax code and say, let's reward savers and investors instead of debtors. So that's point number one. Um, Point number two, though, is that All of us with our retirement portfolios um, could think more smartly. I have a whole chapter on how the asset management part of the financial industry takes so much in fees. Um, These actively managed mutual funds, they almost never beat the market. Everybody should just put their money in a no-fee index fund and forget about it until it's time to retire. Yeah, Um, yeah. Because you just don't need to be paying those fees. Um, uh, there's been some really great academic research that shows as much as 60% of your nest egg can be eaten up by those fees if you're not careful. So put in put in an index fund, forget about it. 
Walk away. Walk away. Don't check your portfolio every every day. Yeah. <laughs> what What should we do, uh, Rana, as an average just voter and somebody yeah. that because it does feel like we're very we're we're uninformed or misinformed. Well, yes, and I think that it's almost like we need to have a narrative shift. We need to change the story around and say. Finance is not the kind of tippy top of the economic pyramid that we should all be aspiring to. Financial services need to be serving real business, and we need to start to understand that. And frankly, we need to vote in politicians that that say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, one of the things I've been a little disappointed by in this election cycle is I have not heard any of the candidates say really clearly the financial markets need to support Main Street, and here's how we're going to make that happen. And I think we need to really keep pushing um, as Americans for, for that message. Well, I bet you'll find that message deeply embedded in Hillary's emails somewhere and somewhere <laughs> sure. atop the wall of uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> well, I'll, or in I'll, the 1% I'll of Bernie Sanders. Up there and keep looking, yeah. <laughs> well, Rana, you're, you're awesome. Keep up the great work. And everybody, uh, go check out this book, Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance, The Fall of American Business by Rana Faruhar. Thanks again, Rana. Thank you so much. You bet. Interesting. We got to get on it, folks. We got to get our companies back. I'm a businessman. It's hard. It's hard. And I get it. But if all you're doing is making money to pay your money lenders, that's not the business model you need. You got to figure out a way to really trickle it down. (laughs) Trickle down. Ronald Reagan said it, right? Anyway, we'll take a break. Come back. Do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Helping you see the good in the world. You know, according to the National Philanthropic Trust, the average annual household contributes $2,974 to uh, family philanthropy, giving, donations. And overall, Americans give about $373 billion in in 2015, which is a 4.1% increase from 2014. So don't think... People's giving is going down. They're giving more and more, and that probably goes up and down with the economy as well. But uh, I think our guest made some great points about the fact that where this giving comes from, it doesn't necessarily needs, need to come from your uh, the big corporations, the big rich people. And, and a lot of times I feel like it's, it is what happens. We – you know, we know our organization raised all this money, and so they paid to the United Way, and so that means we don't need to pay f- at the United Way. Yeah, the problem is you end up losing the opportunity, the peace, the lesson learned, and you even end up losing the opportunity to have your family become a part of that. One of the things we do in my church is uh, we used to have janitors that would clean all of the chapels, and now what they've found is why? Let's have the members clean the chapels. So they pass around a list every week, and you sign up to take your family to go clean your church. And what a powerful opportunity to uh, to take your family and wash the windows and the doors and the door handles and the restrooms in your church. And the minute you're doing that, amazingly, the conversations change. 
Now, when I, I just signed our kids up, and when I let them know we're doing it, they call, all kind of looked at me like, ah, can't someone else do it? Sure. Problem is, that's how we become generous, is by giving, not by having someone else give for us. So suggest highly that we all get our heads back in the generous mode. And again, I, I personally feel like I'm I, I'm strapped. I can't just keep giving financially, but I have time and I have talents and I have resources that are other than just financial resources that I can give. Let me donate time. My wife just donated time for our, our sports teams. We've donated time at school. We may donate. I donate speeches and go do free speeches all over the uh, the place just to help because I can give. That's what I can do. I can't just keep throwing cash at everything, but we got to get our head back in the game. Plus, another way I think to become grateful and and more generous is noticing what you've been given yourself. A fun activity you might want to try is sit your family down and just one night, let's try to come up with 100 things that as a family we are all grateful for. Blessings, gifts, wonderful things we've been given. It could be our own talents. It could be things people have given to us. How many times has somebody just showed up with cookies at our house just because, or friends, or neighbors, and make a list of 100 things that you are more grateful for. Nothing will make you happier than when you actually can can identify the good things that happen in your world. Um, another powerful tool is simply give your passion. Find something that you really love to do and share it with other people. Uh, I just had a friend talk to me about how they go as a family because everyone in the family except the dad loves to sing, loves to act, loves to entertain. So the father, uh, because it makes his family so happy, they go travel and spend their vacation time performing at, uh, you know, kind of different festivals. And I'm like, really? Are you getting better at performing? And he's like, not really. But it sure makes my daughters happy. And they'll go spend a month of their vacation time just doing what they're passionate about. A powerful gift you could give would be passion. Another powerful gift would be compassion. How many times now do we hear these stories about the uh, these refugees coming from Syria and from other countries, and yet we don't have compassion for them? Well, yeah, they're going to kill us. Well, again, as we talked about in the first hour, statistically, not really likely. You know, three in 10 billion will create a problem for you. But... We can still give. We can still care. We can still share. Uh, just giving, losing a part of yourself to uh, to give back to another. And one of the other rules, just simply of giving and being generous, is whenever we direct the hour, the arrows outside of us to en- enable and help other people, it stretches us and makes us bigger people. Anytime we're pushing the arrows back into ourselves, it shrinks us. It makes us smaller people. If we want to be a bigger people, a bigger population, we got to push those arrows out towards others. So a little Coach's Corner for you. Just some hope, some insight. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. If you haven't learned this yet, Apparently, 
there's there are going to be people in your life. They're either, you know, they could be your children. They could be your your spouse. Uh, in Ben's case, it could be a parole officer. But you're going to have somebody near and dear to you. And these people are going to be irritants, possibly. They also could be uh, help. They could be there to lift you, to make your life better. They can tear you down, <laughs> beat you up. But if you can't work with people, then what else are you going to be left with? Well, maybe a chicken. According to a, uh, a report we just got, uh, a French sailor has embarked on a journey around the world accompanied by his pet hen named Monique. Garrick Sudi. There's Monique right there. A 24-year-old from Brittany, France, has been traveling with his pet hen and chronicling... What'd you say, Monique? What'd you say, babe? Aw, cute little Monique. He's been chronicling their adventures since 2014. And, you know, for a minute he thought, maybe, maybe I ought to get a cat. I'll just have a cat, and I'll bring a cat as my companion instead of Monique. But then he thought, you know, that's going to take a lot of work. So the hen was the ideal choice. It wouldn't work. I mean, it wouldn't take work. The hen would, you know, the hen would just be there to be his friend. So now they just sit on the boat, float around the world. She follows every. She follows him everywhere. She's like just this little pal. They just sit on the side of the boat. So, Monique, what do you think about the sunset, Monique? What do you think, babe? Mmm, yeah. That's really good. What should we have for dinner, Monique? Oh, eggs? <laughs> okay, Monique. You know, I guess when it comes down to it, uh, in Castaway, it's better than a ball. It beats a volleyball. Well, at least a volleyball would, like, you'd be able to decide what it answers. Monique, does my bother, does my mother irritate you? Monique, answer me. Don't make me wring your neck, Monique. Get over here, you little chicken. Yeah, I think she'd drive me crazy. And do they, it seems like it'd have a hard thing, it'd be hard to, like, stay on the boat for that little bird. Right? Because aren't boats a little slippery as you're walking along the sides? What does she grab onto her with her little I think she uses her little legs. beak to, like, grab onto the rope in case she slips. Yeah, I bet you Monique's just learned to hold onto the rope. I bet she could tie a great knot. Oh, yeah. All those sailor knots. Man. All I need to do is shout Monique and she will come to me. She's to sit on me, give me company. She's amazing. What would you choose out there in the Twitter sphere? What would you choose? If you were going to take a pet around the world with you, what would you pick? A chicken? A hen? Personally, I'd want a horse. I've never had a horse. I bet a horse would be hard on a boat. Have you seen The Life of Pi? Yeah. I'd choose a tiger. Yeah, you'd be dead. Ah, that kid didn't die. Well, you're not that kid. (laughs) Not to be rude. I'm very good with cats. (laughs) Here, kitty, 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 kitty. When you think about it, folks, in the end, you're going to have to learn to work with people or you're going to be left circle circumnavigating the world with a hen 
Nothing wrong with that. Don't want to dissuade anybody from uh, doing that. People matter. And so people's skills matter. We probably, in fact, I believe strongly that that's one of the reasons you're here on this earth is to figure out yourself as you interact with others, to not get caught up in like the peer pressure where you think you've got to do something for some other reason than your values suggest. Instead, I think we're here to, to discern and figure out and become a, an agent that chooses how we're going to live. Do you believe that? Are you ever going to uh, be able to perfect dealing with people? I don't think so, because every person you come across will be just a little bit different. But unless you want to spend the rest of your life on a boat or alone in your house, I mean, I get it. I'm somebody, I'm an introvert sometimes. I love to just be alone, except there's also times I want to go with people. I, I want to be with people. I want to hang out and learn and grow and change. So let's do what we can to start learning these skills on the personal level. Don't worry about everyone else learning them because they may not. But you in your life today can learn how to be a better team leader, how to be a better person, how to read people, how to listen, how to understand, how to manage your emotion, how to manage their emotion. So a little challenge for you as we end this coaching corner, what are you going to do? What's one thing that you can go make better today in your life by working better with people? What's one relationship you need to work on? And what's the most important thing you need to learn to manage that relationship more effectively. And then get on it. Go look up something on psychology today. Go to my website at matttownsend.com. Anywhere you can, gather the information you can, get the help. Just listen to the show for heaven's sakes. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And when I work with clients and couples, I cannot tell you. It's it's almost every single couple. They, they just don't believe that uh, they can do that they could make a change themselves in themselves and make a change in their relationship by themselves but one of my favorite quotes is two heads are better than one and one head is better than zero <laughs> i would rather that just at least one person gets the idea that the of the outward mindset where my problem is i don't have enough ability skill control um, insight into who I'm dealing with in these other people. And if I could take, instead of just reacting to what they're doing to me, if I could actually turn it and go understand, go listen, go be impacted, then it would give me more and more power and more and more insight in how to create change and how to create a healthier life. Well, yeah, but what if the person's abusive? Right. If they're abusive, you got to be careful, but the principle still applies. If you're dealing with somebody that's abusive, it would be better that you pay attention and that you learn and you understand and you have an outward mindset instead of thinking their abuse is because of you. And then you go inward. I'm a loser. I'm no good. And then you shut yourself down and become something you're not. Over and over, I've seen these principles applied in the couples I work with, and it's one of the hardest things you can do because a lot of times when you listen to this, it induces some guilt because you're thinking, I'm, I'm a loser. But the mere fact when you're, when you're starting to process the guilt, um, you're starting to turn inward, aren't you? And 
inward's fine, except it's not going to change the situation. It's not going to change the scenario. So the outward mindset might simply be, how do I start to take the values and the principles I believe in and implement them with others? How do I say that I want to be, you know, a loving, caring, amazing, wonderful husband, except I, I don't do that with my partner? And I, if I, what if I don't see my partner as a person? What if I don't understand their needs? When I work with my clients, so many times um, I'll have a part, one of the partners say, I know, I know, she's been complaining about that for 20 years. And I'm like, okay, so have you tried to understand it? Well, she makes no sense. Okay, but have you tried to understand it? Then all we have to do a lot of times is sit down and start to understand it. But there's this weird game that we play where we all of a sudden think our problem is our spouse or our problem is, um, you know, they don't hug enough. They don't touch enough. And that becomes the big problem. And as long as I'm fixated on that problem of my wife not doing this or my husband that always does this, that problem is outside of me, and I'm not going to start to do anything with it. Three basic principles, basic steps, uh, seeing others, adjusting your efforts, and measuring your impact. It's called change, by the way. You got to change. Well, when when are they going to change? You can't worry about when they're going to change. You got to change. Well, you make it sound so easy. I know. And you make it sound so complicated. It's human nature. If you're mad, don't assume you're mad because someone else is violating your life. Why don't you just assume you're violating some principle? That's why you're mad. If you weren't violating a principle, you probably wouldn't have a need to be mad. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You... You sitting there, you listening in your car, wherever you are. What What's the one thing that you know you need to do? The one thing that has been, ah, oh, just chasing you. If I just, I just got to do this one thing. If I, if once I'm in shape, this is going to happen. Once I, uh, once I'm a better dad, this is going to happen. We have these ideas. We carry them with us for years. Then all of a sudden, boom. You you can't fix certain things. A heart attack. I really should have been exercising. <laughs> Blasted. It's it's a big deal, folks, and all of us are battling life. It's you know, I don't ever want you to get depressed because of we keep bringing you things you can do. You don't even need to do it, but you could do something. Just do the thing, the one thing that you know, if you would just do it, it would it would have an impact. Well, I can't. I've tried to start an exercise program. You don't even need to try to start an exercise program. Just go start doing an exercise program. You don't need to build up a really intense program. You don't need to. You don't need to, you know lose weight and start you don't need to buy a scale you don't need to do all that just whatever's on your list i really need to call my kids but it's so hard to call them because they make me always feel so bad all right so why do you keep being prompted to call your kids 
I'm a big believer that uh, the answers are already in you. I don't – when I work and coach somebody, I don't need to um, to make up new things for them to do. Lao Tzu, one of my favorite quotes, is at the center of your being, you have the answer. At the center of your being, you know who you are and you know what you want. So the center of you knows. Maybe your heart knows but your head tells you something different. Your heart tells you, you just need to focus on family. Your head might be telling you, but I, I can't because I'll get behind in my career. Your heart might tell you, don't worry about weight. Worry about health. But your head's like, I don't know, I've already gained 10 pounds and I look horrible next to Stacy who went to high school with me. And then your, your head carries you away. Your heart already knows who you are. I call that your essence, right? The essence of who you are already knows that you're amazing, phenomenal, incredible. But then we get caught up in our ego and our ego's like, you got to beat everybody. You got to be faster. And if you're not going to be faster, then you need to label yourself as incredibly slow with no hope. Roadkill. So our egos make us either be better than everybody or worse than everybody. But your heart gets that, you know, you're good. Your heart gets that there's stuff you should be doing, but it also knows why you're not. It doesn't bring you peace, though. So your peace is only going to come by living in your essence. Your peace won't come long-term by living in your head because you're only as good as your head is good. And your head's going to change every time the lady next to you loses a pound. You're going to need to lose a pound if that's how you measure. If you measure by wealth, then as soon as your neighbors inherit more money or earn more money or triple their income or buy a bigger house, your head says, see, you're a loser. And your ego kicks in. Meanwhile, your essence doesn't care if you're in a big house or a little house. Your essence just cares that you're connected to God, that you are connected to family, and that you're becoming better at who you are supposed to be. Basic, right? Basic. So be careful. As we, as we go through life, it's, it's every one of us. We're chasing, we're chasing the illusion. We're chasing the dream. We're chasing the stuff that's really not even what we're about. And we'll get entirely exhausted in the chase. And eventually, I'm worried that some of us will get too tired to chase anymore. But we'll find ourselves you know, climbing that ladder of success one rung at a time. We finally get to the top and we realize the ladder's against the wrong wall. Ugh, we've become something we didn't even care about becoming. So just watch it. So ask yourself this one question. What is the one thing, not big, just what's the first step I need to take today? And go take that step. What is it? To become the change. A little bit of the change. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts. Hundreds of them uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. And today, I, as promised, I, I'm trying to help us find the good in the world. And one of the things I have found just in my own professional career that is, I think, under misunderstood and, and underestimated in their value would be the foster care programs around the country. And so I've asked uh, Mike Hamblin to join us. Mike is the Director of Recruitment at Utah Foster Care Foundation. Utah Foster Care is a private nonprofit with a contract with the state of Utah to do all of the recruitment training uh, and training for state-licensed foster care families prior to working at Utah Foster Care um, uh, Mike worked with the Utah Division of Child and Family Services and was a caseworker and then Child Protective Services Investigator. He has a master's degree in social work with emphasis in child wife welfare. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. I haven't seen you forever. Mm-hmm. Mike and I, I used to do work and teach my own marriage classes at the same facility where Mike is, and we'd see each other, hang out, go to events. But good to see you. You're yep, still working. Hall. Yep, still still have a job. It's great. You still you still have a job. Okay, foster care. Now, give us the overview because some people don't know what foster care is, and um, and yet it's it's happening in probably most of our neighborhoods. We're seeing some somebody helping, serving, doing something. Yeah, and it's it's not uncommon to have the situation out there that you're just not aware of that so generally what happens is that when there's when there's concerns of abuse or neglect that come up a call goes in to the state agency um to the, in utah it's the division of child and family services and it's known by different names around the nation and uh, and from there based on what the allegations are what the concerns are they'll send out someone to do an investigation and really the initial role is to identify is there really abuse going on in the home is there neglect is there a reason to be concerned for the child and then the the next step to that process is then determining, okay, if there has been abuse or neglect, what needs to happen to remedy that? And quite often, they can put services in place with the child staying in the home and just help the parents out to, to get right. the help that they need. But in certain circumstances, when it's, when it's deemed uh, too dangerous, uh, a situation for the child to remain for their own safety in that home, then it becomes necessary for the child to be removed from the parents. Uh, the goal is to have that be temporary while the state works with the parents, tries to resolve those issues, and then have the child return back to the family that they were removed from. Mm. It, and it's, I mean, imagine you're a 10-year-old girl or a 10-year-old boy, and you're living in an unsafe place anyway. It's whatever, maybe drugs, maybe just whatever. It could be anything, sure. crime or anything. Um or just abuse or whatever, what have you, then all of a sudden you're removed from that situation and put into many times a different situation, completely opposite of what you're used to. Right. And that's one of the things that has to be balanced through this whole equation is the concept of, you know, it's 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 not good for a child to be in an abusive or neglectful situation, but um, does it outweigh the trauma of having a child removed from that situation right. and put somewhere completely different? Because the reality, like you said, you know, the children are in this abusive, they're in this neglectful situation, there may be drugs, there may be some physical violence, domestic violence, but the other piece of the reality is, is that's what they've always known. To them, that's normal. Right. And so, um, it, you know, most of us would look at that and say, holy cow, look what they're going through. And for them, it, that's just Monday, you know, that's yeah. Tuesday. And so, yeah, yeah this is a normal day. So, so it's not quite, I mean, it, it is, it's a, it's a, it's quite a balancing act to determine which trauma is, is more effective. 415,129 children were in foster care in 2014. Yeah. And that's actually a lower number. The state, the, the, 
all of the states have have really focused efforts recently on trying to reduce the numbers of kids in foster care, whether that's working to get kids home more quickly or moving them through the system to adoption if they're not able to go home. So some of these kids get to a point where they they go with their foster care parents and I guess eventually uh, their 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 birth parents aren't able to get together, get their act together, get them back, bring them back so then they can be adopted by a foster care family. Right, right. And this is this is actually – it's kind of interesting. So I started in, in child welfare at, at the state a little over 20 years ago. And at that time, the average length of stay for a child in foster care here in Utah was about three and a half years. Wow. Uh, depending on the circumstances, you know, three and a half to four years. And, and uh, in 1997 uh, – the U.S. passed the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which they they noticed that this was you know this was a negative thing for kids to just hang out in foster care. And the reality was, when a child was in foster care, we knew that they were safe. They were mm. with a foster parent. We knew that the abuse or neglect wasn't happening. So the focus was really on keeping families together and getting kids back to their parents. But it was based on the parents' timeline. And so if the parents weren't making any progress, there was no – I mean, there was really no stick to get them to move along yeah. or no carrot. And yeah. So they would just kind of hang out knowing they could, they could get their kids back at any time. And so in 97, the federal government passed this uh, Adoption and Safe Families Act, which basically said that um, anytime a child's been in foster care for 15 of the last 22 months – then it's time for the state to move forward. And so they made it a little bit more easy oh, wow. to terminate the parental rights. And they just kind of said, it's not good for kids to hang out in foster care. They need yeah. some permanency, yeah. whether it's going home or going on to be adopted. And so um, and, and so every state, in order to receive federal funding, had to adopt something that would be in meeting with that. Here in Utah, basically what they determined was that uh, parents have 12 months to get their kids back and to work through their issues. And if wow. they can't do it within that 12-month period, then it's time to start looking at, a, at another long-term permanent home for the children. Are the parents able to visit with the child during foster care? Uh, yeah, yeah certainly. Yeah. And, it, and it really depends on what the circumstances are and what the risks are to the child. But yeah. initially, those visits begin supervised, and then they'll move to unsupervised before the kids go home. A lot of times, they'll have some, some overnight weekend visits hmm. while they're transitioning kids to go back home. And, and really, I mean, in, in Utah, theoretically, um, for most kids, it's at, at least once a week, for at least an hour a week. And for the really young kids, they try to do it more often than that. If you imagine the bonding that takes yeah. place with an infant, you oh. know, once a week for an hour doesn't do a whole lot no. for them. And so they'll no. try to do it more frequently than that. It seems like it's also just having done some work with your foster care parents. It's a, it's a difficult thing because you bond with these kids. A lot of times you, you fall in love with them and then you give them back. That's hard. Yeah. And um, – or sometimes you don't quite bond the way you thought you would, and it's it's harder because some of these kids are struggling because of their history. So, I mean, what's, what is it like? Explain just kind of who comes in and decides, hey, I'm going to be a foster parent, and and how do they make that decision? Yeah, it's a, it's really a challenge either way, like you describe, and, and it's interesting to see talking to foster parents. They'll say, you know what, we always cry when they go home. Sometimes we you know, cry sometimes with joy. cry with joy, yeah. and and uh, and they do um, get to love the children, even the ones that that can be a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Um, so usually, what we see as far as foster parents, we see a lot of families that feel like um, they've had it, they've got they've got it good. You know, they've been really blessed in this life. They to have a good job, to not have a lot of serious issues in their family, and so they feel like they want to give back to the community and help out kids hmm. that don't that don't have it that good. 
Uh, we also see families that are looking at to potentially add to their to their family through adoption. You know, the, whether for whatever reason they're yeah. unable to have children themselves, or their children are grown and they feel. Like, in fact, I've talked to some families that say, you know, we're able to have children, but we feel like there's enough children in this world that need parents that we don't need to bring more children into the world. So we we can take care of the ones that are here, and mm-hmm. so we kind of see a combination of those. And in Utah alone, there were more than 600 children adopted from foster care last year, and so it's not amazing. Yeah, it's not uncommon. And there's more children that would would have been available or are available to have been adopted that are waiting for families. Are they usually then adopted by the foster family, foster care family? Yeah, most most children adopted from foster care are adopted from the family, and, and a part of that is. Um, you know, speaking of the trauma of having a child go into foster care, we also know that it's traumatic every time they have to move. So if you're yeah. with a family and then it's like, okay, in fact, it, years ago, we separated it out and we had foster families and adoptive families. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they never crossed paths. And so a child would go into foster care, stay in foster care. If they were going to be adopted, they would be, even if the family wanted to adopt them, they would be moved to an adoptive family. And now, since we recognize the trauma involved in moving kids, yeah. Um, we really focus on families that are are willing and able to do both. To be, a, we call it a resource family. You know, be yeah. a resource for the child, whether that's temporary for however long that is, or whether that becomes permanent. And especially, uh, the focus has become, especially for younger children, you know, under the age of five or six, the focus really is on just finding foster families that are also open to adoption, so that hopefully they never have to move. Yeah. And with the older kids, it's a little bit more common to have families that that just foster and then other families that adopt. Wow. It really – it's so needed. And I and I, I just think – I don't know. Having trained a bunch of them too, it's – there's so much love that they have. And these parents – I mean they get compensated, right? A foster care parent is compensated by the state to cover the costs for – I mean but it's not like – Yeah, in theory not it making covers living costs. It's food, shelter, clothing basically. Right. Yeah. It's, we joke that it's, uh, it starts at a little over $15 a day and you know, we kind of joke if you wanted to kennel your dog, you'd be paying 20 So <laughs> – it's you true. know, you get yeah, it's you get totally less true. than what. So you're, it's an act of love, not right, right. Sense. And so that fifteen dollars a day covers, you know, any clothing. There's a certain clothing oh, allowance. Yeah. A certain amount supposed to be spent on clothing each month, and so, you know, food activities. And we, as a private nonprofit, we're able to take in donations from uh, individuals who are willing to. Uh, help and support foster families. And so we we have what we call a wishing well fund mm-hmm. where families can come to us and request some assistance to purchase, you know, something like bikes for kids or um, if they need additional uh, additional items for whatever we've paid for music lessons. I mean, all of those kinds of things, all those enrichment type activities to try and normalize life for kids oh. that it, without support, um, the foster parents would need to come up with the funding for themselves. It's so... It's so important. And, I mean, fundraising. So if, if you want to, you can go to utahfostercare.org and, and just look at what they do and understand that this is just for Utah. Um, but there are other every, – every state would have some organization, right? Yeah, every state has organizations that are similar that are doing you know, that same recruitment or providing yeah. some support one way or the other. Well, let's take a break, come back, continue the discussion about foster care and, and the need, folks. 400,000 kids need help every year in the foster care world. Mike Hamblin is joining us. He'll come back and we'll continue to discuss foster care families and uh, what you can do about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, I'm today talking with Mike Hamblin, who is the director of recruitment at Utah Foster Care Foundation, which is a private uh, nonprofit organization that's contracted with the state of Utah to take care of foster care recruitment and, and training and, and taking and just managing the program. Every state has their own foster care type of program, and um, I'm, uh, the reason I wanted to talk about it is we we hear story after story about all of these kids that uh, you know are getting in trouble. They don't have the support at home that they need, and um, there are answers out there, folks. But they also they need your help too. So if you're a parent, um, if you if you've ever thought of adopting a child or just interested in understanding the foster care program, as a foster care parent, you don't necessarily adopt the child, you first are just a foster parent. You provide a space for them to be safe and grow. Right. And then then once you once they're growing and healthy and things are working, you could maybe in time move to to uh, adopt if the child doesn't look like he's going back to his parents. Right. It just depends on the, that particular child situation and, and what's going on with that child. And it's kind of, it's interesting. There's a lot of misconceptions about kids in foster yeah, care, how they those. get there, you know, what their situations are. And, and the reality is, is that kids are in foster care, not because of anything that they've done, but because of abuse or neglect they've experienced. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, you know, we talk about the role of the environment in our development. Unfortunately, based on that abuse or neglect, uh, it's not uncommon for them to develop some behaviors which really were appropriate and and were meant to protect themselves from right, that environment. Right. You know, if we've got kids that uh, you know that didn't have food in the home, and you find out that they're that they're stealing food from Seven Eleven on the corner, well, you know, okay, that's a negative behavior. But the reality is, is they survive. They needed something. They need to survive. Sure. And and those are the kids that then when they get into foster care, you know, they're in the home and and they're there's food there now. But but they're not sure they can rely on that. They haven't been in that environment. And so it's not uncommon to find kids who are maybe hoarding some food or they're not sure their their yeah. situation. I, yeah. I um, remember – I'll never forget a little boy that uh, that went into a home and it's – um, it's kind of an interesting story that he, uh, the the family's home that he moved into is about four years old. The family's home that he moved into, they began renovating their kitchen not long after he got there, and so they had this pantry in the kitchen, and they took the door off it while they're putting a new floor in. And uh, the foster mom told me he couldn't walk through the room without stopping in front of that pantry and looking at all the food. And once she, he was playing outside, and he needed to go to the bathroom, and he came running in, and he still had to stop in front of the door and kind of dance a little jig before he took off down the hall to the restroom. Oh, that's cute. But it was just he just couldn't understand. Yeah. She said that, you know, when he first arrived, she was making him a sandwich or, you know, some SpaghettiOs every two hours. He wanted something to eat. Oh, and as heavens. time progressed, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, part of it was just making sure, yep, food's still available. As time progressed, it got to the point where he asked with the same frequency, but she'd make a sandwich and he'd take two bites and then he'd be done with it. And at first she was frustrated. And then she yeah. thought, well, I can put it in a, you know, in a Ziploc. It'll be ready for next time. That's right. And and as time progressed and as he began to trust that environment, then, th- then they went back to their established mealtimes. And he you know, he felt safe and he felt like he could trust that there was food that was going to be. Oh, and it's similar it's with other behaviors. You know, if a child's been physically abused, um, but every time something goes wrong, then of course they're going to tell you that they're not the one that spilled the milk or broke whatever, because in, in their home growing up, when they're the one that did that, then they were physically mm-hmm. abused. And so why would I tell you the truth yeah. about something I might've done? I don't know how, I don't yeah. know you, I don't know what you're going to do to me. But it seems like it's a good thing to, for everyone to learn that, um, 
I mean, like the brothers and sisters, if you have children already and you're bringing a foster care child in, kids are developed. They can grow. They're resilient. They'll learn. They'll change. They'll adapt in many situations. You just need to kind of be patient and not not automatically turn on them because they lied or they stole something. Well, and it's amazing the progress they can make. When, so when I was a caseworker, one of the first cases I had was a um, was a. Uh, boy who was about nine years old and uh, he came into foster care in the fall and so they did some testing with him initially at the school to determine where he needed to be what he needed uh, while he was in foster care um, you know suddenly he had parents that uh, that cared about him doing his homework yeah. that, you know that read to him that played games with it did all these things so the end of the school year they tested him again he had jumped 20 iq points within about a six or seven month period of time based solely on System. the interest Closes. and the effort that this family had put into helping him oh my heavens and then you've told stories off air about um just a, a girl who had straight a's and great test scores it's just her mom wasn't healthy. Yeah, yeah. Her mom had some issues um, th- that led to it not being safe for her to be at home. She had, she, in fact, so, so with this particular girl, it's kind of interesting. She came into foster care because her mom got angry with her and wanted to talk to her. She ran into her room and shut the door the mom, and locked it. For the mom to get in, she tried to knife her way through the door and then lit the door on fire thinking she could burn her way through the door. So, oh I mean, it was heavens. just not yeah. a stable place. So she this, wasn't well. Yeah, so this girl comes into foster care and I went to visit the mom two days later and the mom tells me, I haven't eaten in two days and i said well why haven't you i said well it's it was her job to do the grocery shopping i haven't eaten in two days well she lived across the street block and a half away from a grocery store Uh. but she hadn't eaten in two days based on and so i mean some of these parents need some very serious help yeah Um, but the other reality is is that again some of these these kids are great kids and they just need to know they're loved right and secure and then have somebody i mean then systems structures right somebody that cares that can show them what a normal life looks like. Right. And it can take some time. I think, you know, going back to the example you gave not long ago, you know, consider yourself as a 10-year-old and that you're living in this environment, you've, but, but it's the environment you're used to. So, you, you know, you go to school, you know your teacher, you've got your friends, you know yeah. what to expect. And then somebody comes along one day and takes you away from that, moves you to a different community, mm-hmm. you know, puts you with a family that you don't know, with oh. a teacher that you don't know, in a place where you've got no friends. The smells are all different. The foods are all different. Now, now, tell me how well you expect that particular child to do in school immediately exactly. or how well for them to adjust. You know, that's the last thing on their mind. They're thinking, when am I going to see my parents again? Right. What, you know, what happened to my favorite toys? You know, where are my clothes? What? It's there's um, so much. Well, and here, here's kind of the breakdown. So there's about 415,000 kids in foster care programs. Um, 52% are male. 48% are female. 39% are five years old or under, uh, 23% are 6 to 10, 22% are 11 to 15, 16% are 16 to 20. seems like the 16 to 20-year-olds wouldn't be as easily uh, placed as uh, some of these young yeah, tends to be true. But because of those misconceptions, yeah. a lot of families come and they say, you know what, I, you know, if a five-year-old, if something goes crazy, I can hold on to them and, and – yeah. You know, restrain them. But, but what if a 16-year-old yeah. comes along, then it's a little bit tougher to do that. But again, that. they need love. And then you've given us great examples of um, of where that can happen. 20 uh, of where somebody can come in and adopt an older child and make a huge difference. 24% are black or African-American. 42% are white. 22% are Hispanic. Um, it's it's interesting, too. Uh, 46% are, are of foster care families are non-relatives. So almost half of them are non-relatives, according 
to this uh, national statistics. National statistics. Yeah. T- about 29 to 30% are relatives. So a lot of times you might get a chance to adopt or foster some of your own brothers and sisters' kids, your nieces, your nephews. Yeah, and that's really the first place that the state looks. Again, going back to that, the trauma involved in putting a child into foster care, removing them from their family, if they can be with someone that they know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and here in Utah at least, and I'm sure it's similar other places, that those in, initially when a child first comes into foster care, they're looking at, is there a relative, a grandparent, and or uncle, someone the child could stay with? And if there's not a relative, is there someone else? Is yeah. there a neighbor? Is there you know the parent of a friend? Is there an old school teacher? Is there somebody that knows the child that the child knows yeah. that's going to make it a, a more easy transition for them? is well, what should we be doing? What can we do? So one, I think, I guess, is we could donate to the areas in our – and get involved too. I mean, you donate money, but donate resources, donate time. I'm sure there's other things needed, clothing. I mean, I've seen at your offices clothing drives, all sure. these great activities. What else can we do to get more involved in this foster parenting world? Yeah, we, we always kind of joke that it's about time. You know, if you've got, if you've got a few – you know, months or weeks or months, then then get licensed, you know, become a foster parent, look at what kinds of children. And and one of the aspects of that is, as a foster parent, you identify what you're comfortable with, the yeah. ages, the genders, the number of children. Uh, and, and it's never a situation where the state just says, hey, we're going to place the child with you. But they call you and tell you about a child's background, what the issues are, and then you determine whether or not to have the child come and stay with you. Yeah. So if you've got the time, that's obviously the, the best place to start. So then if you don't have as much time, then you could look at, are there places, are there ways that you could work with and mentor a child? Here in the in the state of Utah, there's uh, the, so for every child in foster care, a guardian ad litem is assigned. And the guardian ad litem is an attorney that is intended to represent the, the best interest of the child or what the child needs. And uh, and they have some folks that work with them that are called court-appointed special advocates or CASA workers. Mm-hmm. And those CASA workers are then assigned to go out and be mentors for kids in foster care. They'll go spend you know, a couple of days, you know, up to three or four days a month with the kids, just take them out, do some activities, see how they're doing, check in with a foster parent, yeah. and then report back to these attorneys so that they have more updated information. And there's similar, similar programs around the U.S. with different advocates or mentors that can meet with kids and, and help you know, just help kids at the same time, helping foster parents, providing them with a little wow. bit of a break now and then. I, yeah. So they can do any level of that. Yeah. So, so anywhere in between. Um, and then, you know, say if you don't have any time at all, then, you know, pull out your credit card or your checkbook mm-hmm. or whatever donate. And, and donate. Mm-hmm. Um, or find, I mean, find people that are wanting children and are looking at it. Talk to them about fostering. Yeah. A lot of people that come to us are referred to us by, by relatives or friends yeah. who know that based on their circumstances, they may be a good foster parent. They should look into it. See, you know what, Mike? Huge. And it's important. And it's such a great feeling watching these parents and their kids. Um, thanks for being with us, Mike. Sure. Appreciate it. Here. Everybody go check out uh, the foster care if you want to. UtahFosterCare.org is Utah's site. But go look up foster care in your uh, area and start getting involved. Let's make a difference, right? Let's not just keep being frustrated by what's going on around the world and the country. Let's start uh, stepping in, doing something about it. We'll take a break, come back to a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Boy, you too stupid to do what your coach tells you. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Hey, um, when you think about it, if everybody has some reason to be a little messed up, right? We got our parents to blame. You know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have, you know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging and they need to get out of it. And sometimes they just need you. So seriously, go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got, uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training where I would take these families and, and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships, to make sure that they were learning you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, one of the things that I have found is, is key to parenting, as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids, is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world and, and I think that's true except what they also I believe need is uh, just they just need to know they're that they that they're cared for that they're worth something and I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks, our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school, that we need to validate their worth, not just their works. Right? Like we talk a lot about what our kid did and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He he was, you know, um valedictorian, top of his class, and we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments, we might be setting them up for something. Uh cuz most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those per class. So there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting this social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just their their work ethic, their, their sense of um, care for others. They... Um, their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a god, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? Encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. 
So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more than you're speaking. And that ex- that by letting them express, even if their expression you don't like or is it you know it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough, it doesn't matter. Let them express. Shine a light on their strengths. Identify what they are good at. Go figure out. Take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time, um, and. Go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's, we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you just go look up our, our, um, our, uh, what are they called? Our podcast. That's it. Go look up our podcast and listen to them, folks, and go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what their strengths are, you might start helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. Anyway, basic stuff. That's the Coach's Corner. We'll take a break. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, uh, whether you get, like, understand what we uh, what we were just talking about with emotional um, build, oh, what's it called emotional brain therapy. Whether that's the way you want to go, you, at some point, you need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues, really, are emotional management issues. Life is great when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion, it's important. And we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are pretty powerful simply because do you notice it makes you almost find your shame it almost makes you it made me look at my guilt it made me dig deeper into what i am doing and what i'm not doing with my own life those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress so the the greatest value of what i think i just saw with uh, dr mellon's work is that it gives me i took a space and in that space i went and started to make change when we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings something's going to change something's going to happen and uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that so make sure you take time to look at your emotions you are not your emotion if you're mad you're not mad you're still yourself you got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. A little coach's corner for you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We got, you, you got these beautiful little kids. 
You know, you put them in their football gear for the first time. Their helmet spins around their little head. They feel like a superstar. They've got the armbands, the sweatbands, even though they really won't sweat because they're hardly going to run. And yet you the entire time, are you thinking about them being an NFL quarterback? Right? You've got these dreams that he's going to be like dad. He's going to throw the game-winning pass. And then you see him line up, the coaches line your boy up next to everyone else. And just to have a little, you know, a little workout. Everybody run to the fence. And as they all run to the fence, you notice your boy doesn't run as fast as the others. Even the heavy linemen are outrunning your boy. You feel this anger start to just a little, just a little fire brewing deep in your head. What is he doing? Run, boy! Run! You start pushing your kid. He's never going to be a quarterback if he can't outrun the line. Day one. And I've seen it with all of my kids. Oh, man, we raised some beautiful boys that love sports. We got involved in the football league. It was so wonderful. Year after year, spending $500-plus a year to play football. Now I'm down to three boys that could play, and uh, my wife – so diligently dedicated some time, has given time to be on the committee for the football league this year. She's volunteering her time to the football league, and my 11-year-old and 13-year-old boys don't want to play anymore. They want to play lacrosse and tennis. Ah, come on. No, I really don't like it, Dad. Ah, sure you do. Ah, Don't really like it. No, come on. At what point do you dig deep into the hearts of your children and let them be them? As a parent, it's a hard thing because sometimes you think they don't know what's right. I mean, this was the same kid that was trying to microwave the metal bowl. So if you don't know how to what to microwave, son, maybe you don't know what sport you want to play this year. What do you do? You watch the Olympics. You dream of your son being at the Olympics or whatever, or being the best piano player, or being the best, uh, you know, being elected in an office at school. How on earth do you get to the point where you can just love them for who they are? I think in the end, um, this is always going to be more about you than it will be them. When you just look at the odds of them going pro, it's not – those aren't great odds. But the principles they can learn in these sports, the principles they can learn about themselves, it's a powerful thing. So will you just look at how you are watching the Olympics? Look at how you're talking about the Olympics with your kids. See if it's all about competition. See if it's about trying – are you putting an undue stress on your child? Are you being real clear, really clear with them on what you really want out of sports? If it's, not, if it's not that they have to be the best athlete, what is it that you want them to become? Are your children clear of that? 
If they're not clear, guess what? Then the value of sports, it's probably not being learned. Uh, We had a friend whose father very much wanted them to be a top athlete and uh, most talented kid I've ever seen playing a sport that uh, my son was on his team and he was just incredible. And his junior year, when he was right about to just blossom, all the scouts were coming to see him. He quit. He's done. Doesn't want to do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. And really what I think it was was the voice of a teenage boy coming out, controlling something he could control, and uh, basically pushing back on his father. So watch out what what you're creating. And, And instead, when you're sitting down watching the Olympics, let's all try to realize this is great for America. The, you know, they're doing well. The teams are incredible. And this is more than that. This is also seeing the refugees that are also competing, the ones that weren't competing. You know, a year ago, they were pushing a boat full of their family members to save lives. And now they're running a race. And they actually didn't win. Right? But they won. They're in the Olympics. They won the refugee lotto. And uh, those stories are really powerful and important. So make sure that you're not always just moving to the medals list with your kids and in their lives. Don't always just move to the medals list. Make sure you're learning the backstories, especially the backstories in the second you know, round uh, group that, that didn't make it to the finals. There's some amazing stories of people and the principles, talk principles, and I think th- then you're creating something powerful, folks. Man, the kids, they're very, they're very willing to learn and open to, uh, to, to have opportunity from the parents. So You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. As a parent, you, you're trying to truly change your children uh, long-term. Always think long-term as we're talking about these issues with Heather. I could just tell somebody to vote for Trump or Hillary anytime, right? We could just go right there, right to the answer, hand it to our kids. The problem is um, you want them to have the skills and the tools to be able to do this long-term. And in the end, if we're not setting up the long-term game for them, we're hindering them. Sometimes the easy, fast answers haven't fixed anything. They, in fact, have just made a few things worse. Some other tools I always suggest uh, when we're trying to talk uh, about any problem-solving issue with, with another person, make sure that you, you push your kids and anybody to spend more time trying to understand the issue. One, thank you. One of the things I found is that we don't know the issues well enough. And so when a politician can throw something out there and nobody questions it, the media might question it. They might even give it five Pinocchios or whatever. But in the end, um, most of the 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 voters don't have a clue that they're full of it. They don't have a clue about what's going on because they haven't studied these issues out. A lot of people are so partisan and they just vote down the party line that they're not actually informed about what's going on. What really is happening with jobs, right? When the, when the um, Obama administration tells you that they put 20 million people on, um, you know, on the health care, that weren't on it before, that just sounds like a great number, right? It's awesome. And what's happening to the other 80% of people that were on health care? What's happened to theirs? Do you know? 
because it's more than just one issue. There's 10 issues going on here. Has costs gone up for people? I mean, you hear that thrown around. Is that true? Is that an actual fact? So anyway, broaden your own pool of understanding. Make sure just as a listener or as a voter yourself that you avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or even sensitive. Thank you. We have so many people that are just so sensitive to what others are saying that uh, it starts fights. It starts – I listen to a out you know all these outtakes that came from the Trump camp, all the outtakes that came from um, some of the Clinton camps, and you're sitting there thinking, are these adults presenting – you know, political arguments, or are they just highly sensitive people freaking out on each other? Another rule about, I think, politics in general, you don't need to pile on. (laughs) Ben loves a good pile on. Um, You don't need to pile on to somebody. A lot of times when people make mistakes or say something stupid, it's obvious. To pile on only makes you look like a bully. And again, that's what I want to teach my kids, because when they're having an issue in their world, I don't want my child to be the one jumping on the one that's already down. Make sense? That's why uh, Heather's advice on working on the principles and the values are so much more important than positions. Positions are going to change. Principles and values, they're eternal. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you're seeing it play out in the news with uh, Donald Trump. I think even Hillary Clinton, this whole idea of emotional intelligence to be a leader You have to be able to manage your emotion. You have to be able to recognize your own emotions uh, and manage them so that that your emotional outbursts, your emotional, your fears, your concerns aren't leading you. You also have to have the ability to recognize the emotions of others and know how to lower those emotions, not make them worse. And finally, I've got to find a way to enroll people into my emotion. It's called emotional intelligence. And as we see people that aren't trusting two of our political leaders, um, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, it might simply be part of the reason we don't trust. We trust people that we believe have emotional intelligence, that they're not going to fly off the handle. I think of it as like a Coke bottle. If I shake a Coke bottle um, or, by, by the way, Diet Pepsi, whatever have you, uh, if I shake it and create a, I'll create a reaction – But if I hand you the bottle and you know I just shook it, you're not going to want to open it. You're not going to trust the explosion that's going to take place. So if you're out there and you feel like people don't listen to you, they don't necessarily trust you, they stay away from you at certain times, it might be that they're sensing that you aren't safe. You're not a safe person because you can't control how you respond in certain certain cases. Perhaps Hillary Clinton – went and hid emails because she's it, she it created fear it she's been in the spotlight forever the media has been harsh on Hillary Clinton and she found it easier to just you know try to control it all on her own nonetheless people don't trust her because of that Donald Trump ends up saying whatever he feels and if you make a, make fun of him or jab him he reacts and crushes you thinking that that's a manly move. The problem is, deep down, we don't trust people that aren't predictable and safe. And it's not something that you can just intellectualize. There's a gut reaction that people have to to unsafe people. And it goes back to the days that we had to live, you know, as a tribe. And if somebody was a loose cannon in the tribe, 
by the way, more likely to create problems, more likely to end up dying, and more likely to being kicked out of the tribe. So emotionally intelligent people, it's a huge advantage. It is something we should be teaching our kids. But don't just pass it down to the kids. First, look at yourself. Do people trust you and your ability to manage emotion? It might be a good thing, too, that you look at your political candidates. Do they possess emotional intelligence? And and is that one of the reasons why you trust them or you don't trust them? It's not going away, folks. It's part of who we are, and it's actually a huge driver of success. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever had a strange or a wild idea that you had to force out of your mind? Oh, just like get rid of that thought, right? For those who suffer from OCD, pushing out intrusive thoughts can be overwhelming, uh, but turning your worries into a catchy tune might be a solution for those who suffer from intrusive thoughts. And here to discuss intrusive thoughts with us and the power of songifying is uh, Dr. Stephen Hayes. And uh, Dr. Hayes is a professor of behavioral analysis at University of Nevada, Reno. He's the author of 38 or more books and uh, is also the developer of the relation frame theory. We'll talk to him about as much of this as we can. Dr. Stephen Hayes, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you. What uh, you talk about um, songs and singing and music as a means to helping to, I guess, get rid of to to destroy or rescript uh, intrusive thoughts. What what do you mean by intrusive thoughts? Well, it's the kind of things that we normally struggle with that we try to push out of mind, and I don't think you really can get rid of them or destroy them, but you can see them in flight, and the the power that they have over you is they sort of pull you into that cognitive network that has set of associations and relationships that you've learned. And once you're in there, you're kind of uh, have less power over where your mind is going to go. If you can back up and watch that it's taking you there, then you have some choices about where you're going to put your attention and what you're going to do in your life. And so that's really the pivot point. If huh. you, uh, once, once you're, once you've got your, uh, you're uh, you're locked into a battle with your thoughts. You're pretty much uh, already at their mercy, and we're trying to catch people a few milliseconds before that happens, and get some choice into the situation. Is you call it the cognitive network? I guess so. Once you kind of get in the the what is it? Are you like in? The, you're already like on the slide. Then <laughs> the slide's going to naturally follow the network right to the pool of emotion that'll sure. just take and over. Listening, if I said Mary had a little, you know, there's just no way that Lamb's not going to show up. It, that's innocent in that case, but suppose it's uh, deep down, I'm not a good person, or uh, I'm not lovable, or uh, you know, I'm going to contamin- contaminate my children. Or and and when you run from these thoughts and try to do something to get rid of them, actually, you're elaborating that network. We've shown in our research that the places that you go when you try to run eventually remind you of the, the things that you're running from. Hmm. 
So if, for example, you tried to think of something to distract yourself from a, a random uh, thought that may have occurred to you that frightened you in some way, the way that you went to distract yourself now within just a matter of minutes will remind you of where you came from. So that's some of what you see in OCD. Hmm. Almost, almost everybody has odd thoughts. Like if you're driving on a bridge, what, what would it be like to uh, turn the wheel and fly off into the space? The difference is that people who develop uh, OCD, etc., are the ones who struggle with them most, not the ones who have the odd thoughts. We all have them. Hmm. So it's, um, yeah, I guess really what a lot of this is, is this is just our patterning of thinking and our way of thinking, and I guess trying to correct ourselves. I mean, it's an interesting point because when someone's, for example, trying to break a habit, um, if they if they think too much about trying to not have that feeling, you're saying they might end up actually ingraining it deeper. Well, we've all lived through that when with uh, a diet, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, don't think about that donut and. <laughs> Uh, back of the refrigerator, and pretty soon you find yourself, uh, you know, digging to the back of the refrigerator. And, you know, habits are better built by this kind of patterns of action that become automatic. And that's some of what happens in our minds when when we're constantly feeding them with this struggle message. So when you're going to break out of the struggle with your thoughts, you need to develop a habit of sort of openness, curiosity, and then having the flexible attention to be able to focus towards your values and behavior and linking your behavior to your values. So we try to catch that moment where our thoughts sort of overwhelm us or dominate us. We call it cognitive fusion, where you disappear into that cognitive network. Almost like daydreaming. I mean, if you uh, are driving down the street, you may daydream and suddenly realize you've gone miles without being aware of what's going on. You're off in your mind. Well, in some ways, we can do that for months and years on end as we fall into the daydream of I'm a bad person or, uh, you know, no one will ever want to be with me or there's something deep down there's something wrong with me. or And these are the kind of things that visited us all, but what we do with them determines whether or not they're going to really create a problem for us. So when you work with clients, your I guess your goal is to help to get them in this state of cognitive uh, in that state of, I guess, cognitive fusion, right, where they're, they're able to look what at we're it. trying to get them to is what we call cognitive defusion. Defusion. Essentially, what, what we try to do is slow the mind down and to notice where it takes you with a sense of curiosity and openness and self-kindness or compassion. After all, your thoughts are sort of have a mind of their own. And sometimes people get uh, with difficult thoughts, almost this kind of scrupulous uh, perspective that, if you think a thought, you've done something bad, and actually, that's that's bad theology in every one of the major religions. If you will a thought, you can do something bad. But if you merely think a thought, that that's something that just happens to us all. Right. So, if you catch that moment before that sort of act of choice to to follow the thought out happens, and so some of the things that we do, well, we might start out with just an open kind of awareness process, like imagining that as you look at the cars going by on the freeway, if you were sitting uh, sitting uh, and watching them go by, that with each thought, put it on one of the cars and just let it go by. Hmm. And just practice allowing thoughts to come and go without grabbing them, holding them, pushing them, trying to race them, change them, but just noticing them in kind of an open sense. 
And, and people have they, we have the ability to do that. Say it again. We have the ability to do that. We have the ability to do that. And in fact, all of our contemplative traditions or contemplative prayer traditions, things of that kind, teach us, I think, to keep our focus. And then when other things come up, to to allow them to simply go by and bring our focus back to what we're doing. And that that mixture of being open to the distractions that go by because if you grab it and focus on it well now you've lost your focus mm. and then coming back to what you choose to focus on that sort of one-two punch of openness and then redirecting attention or in all of our contemplative traditions meditation traditions and so forth and so that's one place we start but when we've done that then we may actually play around with some of the things that we've developed in the laboratory hundreds of methods, but I'll give you a few examples. One that was developed at the turn of the century by a guy named Titchener, father of American psychology, really, and we were the first to ever use it clinically, which is just, if you have a difficult thought that's really sticky, distill it down to a single word and say it out loud fast for about 30 seconds. So if you have a thought that you're a loser, let's say, distill it down to loser, say loser out loud fast for about 30 seconds. And by the end of that 30 seconds, it is a sense of disconnection from the thought. The thought begins to lose its meaning, and the, the uh, upset that it produces goes down, the sense of believability in it goes down. Hmm. And the next time that thought occurs, I'm a loser, you'll have just a little bit of a fragment of loser, 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 to the meaninglessness, and it'll give you a choice as to whether or not you then run out after it or fight with it. No, I'm not a loser. And next thing you know, you're in the middle of this well-worn battle that, you know who's going to end up with you disappearing into it and, and in a sense losing in the effort to win. Hmm. Instead, better not to fight at all. Just allow that thought to come and go and redirect your attention towards what you care about. Does it get, and it gets better every time you do that? It, just, it has less hold on you? Well, we've, we've actually shown that, yeah, in controlled research, that this kind of word repetition allows people then to, over time, not just in the moment when you're doing it, have more sense of openness and choice about these difficult thoughts that emerge. And the one that you mentioned in the intro, the Song of Five, especially with adolescence and so forth, we, we like doing things. After we get into the spirit of it, you usually start with things like this, this thought observation, uh, this kind of open, almost meditative thing, and then things like word repetition. But eventually, the more humorous ones will come up, or we'll actually do things like create depression rap songs, <laughs> or, uh, you know, put... Uh, uh, um, thoughts to the voice of your least favored politician, or <laughs> perhaps Donald Duck. Perhaps Donald Duck could be the one to tell you you're a loser. Interesting, yeah, because it changes the whole thing if it's Donald Duck, you know, a lispy duck talking to you. Well, exactly, since if you have this kind of associative process, or if I say Mary had a little, you're going to have that thought when mm-hmm. you have well-worn thoughts, they occur repeatedly, and they're so grooved in our brain, and there's no delete button in the brain, there's no subtraction, it's all addition and multiplication, and so instead of trying to find the magic eraser and the delete button, if you change the context by, for example, saying them in a funny voice, it changes their impact, and then the next time they occur not in a funny voice, you have a little bit of remembrance of that funny voice version of it, and it gives you a bit of a choice. Wow. The thought, impact of thoughts on you is not automatic. You can change that, but you need to change them in ways that are more clever than we're normally used to, which is simply to 
try to argue ourselves out of it or distract our, ourselves away from it, which sometimes only amplifies the network and amplifies their impact. Yeah, it is powerful to think how how much they just – if you don't think about it, like you're saying, if you don't get into that kind of uh, early on openness and, and where you're actually able to look at your thinking – then you're just, I guess, riding down the river. You're just going with the flow, and that flow seems to lead you to the same, you know, pain. No, exactly. And it's, it's well-worn, well-grooved. You know where yeah. you're going. Safe. And, and that uh, attitude of initial kind of openness and so forth allows you to bring in the, this uh, uh, more flexible way of interacting with your thoughts that we call uh, diffusion. Once you're there... You don't want to do that as an end in itself. I mean, we don't want to simply back up from our thoughts. Some of our thoughts are useful. Mm-hmm. Once you're there, you can make some choices about the ones that are worth attending to. And we get into more directing your attention on purpose. And then the work that I do in psychotherapy, acceptance and commitment therapy is the name of the work that we do or act. If you Google it, you can find many, many books on acceptance and commitment therapy if people are interested in trying to apply these methods. The one I wrote that's most popular, Get Out of Mind, Into Your Life, but there's several uh, others out there by other authors. Hmm. And Man. what we then do is we direct the attention towards meaning and purpose, because it turns out that if you're more open and flexible with your thoughts, you can bring choice in there and begin to focus on the qualities of being and doing that you really want to manifest in your life. and. Uh, that's worth linking your behavior to, not these kind of automatic, uh, uh, marry out a little kind of... Yeah, reactivity. It, yeah, to be an active being instead of just a, you know, a reactive being. Let's, um, let's take a break and continue the discussion. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Hayes. He is a, a, the Foundation Professor of Behavioral Analysis at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the author of many books um, that are uh, so valuable in this area of acceptance and commitment therapy. He's helping us reevaluate our thinking and our brains. Stick with us, folks. Go to, uh, by the way, his website, stephenchayes.com. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Everybody, I was just thinking about how many times you've had a thought that you can't get rid of, and one that you really want to, like, oh, quit thinking, you're so, you're going to blow it, you're going to blow this, oh, you've got a big talk to give, and you're going to just, uh. how do you break through and, uh, and, and move on, really, to a healthier space where you can actually start to think about succeeding at, uh, at, at public speaking or succeeding at something instead of just always being afraid of blowing it. Well, Dr. Stephen Hayes is joining us. He is the foundational or the foundation professor of behavioral analysis at the University of Nevada, Reno. He has authored more than 38 books and is the developer of the relation frame theory and acceptance and commitment therapy, and, um, which is uh, a tool that he uses to help as we go through um, this process of kind of re-scripting our brain, and he's uh, he's a great resource. We appreciate you here, Dr. Stephen Hayes. Thanks for being with us. It's fun to be with you. Talk about um, th- there really is. It seems like what you've been describing is there's a there's almost a pre-subconscious thought 
or, or something that gets us starting to, to create a thought, and you want us to see if we could get into that pre-thought moment. Yeah, to open up to essentially what you're catching is you're catching the echoes of your history. I mean, you can sometimes find these critical thoughts are linked to particular memories or feelings or things that you've had. Uh, you mentioned people uh, giving talks. Part of my interest in this, where Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act came from, was my own panic disorder. And giving uh, talks and stuff 35 years ago was just a horror, mm. which was important for me as a, as a professor. And so I'd rehearse it, and I'd be thinking about it and worrying about it and so forth. If I dug down to it, you know, part of it was wanting to be there and make a contribution. There's actually a positive side to it. Yeah. There's also some echoes of my history that were very painful that were in those moments. I actually gave a TED Talk on that. If people want to uh, Google my hmm. name on YouTube or something, they can find it. And so when we back up and notice our thoughts... In addition to giving us more flexibility as where we go, sometimes we can have in that moment of more compassion or self-kindness a little bit of a sense of the painful histories that are linked to some of these difficult thoughts, things that have happened to us that we are actually learn from. Because yeah. The flip side of these painful memories and these painful experiences are the kinds of lives we want to live. And a person who's afraid of giving a talk is a person who wants to do something in the talk. A person who's afraid of people is a person who wants to be with people. Well, and wouldn't it make sense to be afraid of giving a talk if you have a horrendous memory of giving one in third grade when you weren't emotionally understanding how to do it? Exactly. You remember those moments of ridicule or criticism or so forth, but what's on the flip side of that pain is wanting to contribute, to be part of it, yeah. to be part of a group, to be liked, to make a difference. And those are not something that we want to close ourselves off from. So part of what is unhealthy about the normal way that we get into a struggle with our thoughts is that we miss the deeper emotional messages that are inside this painful history, which if you flip over, is very close to the values and mm. purposes that we want to bring into our lives. Sure. So, uh, we it, we do it at at the cost of knowing our own history and connecting with our sense of meaning and purpose. And, and by flipping to the positive side, I guess it becomes a motivator for you. It, it could be something that could keep driving you to go back and uh, and tame your thinking. Exactly, and the kind of a, a kinder way, one that's not subtractive or limitive or self-critical. Very much as you might if you met yourself as a young child with some of these uh, difficult thoughts and difficult experiences, you know, very likely what you'd be moved to do is something quite kind for mm. the younger part. But yet when we grow up and those things echo in the moment, sometimes we cheer so, so critically and with wagging fingers about how we have to get rid of that. There's something wrong with you. Stop that. Mm-hmm. Which, all of which just amplifies it out and puts an emotional tone into those moments that actually disempower us instead of empowering us to be present with ourselves as whole people and to be able to focus on what we really care about. I've seen that with couples, too, where when somebody has kind of an attachment uh, disorder where they're pulling away because, in a way, you can almost see the five-year-old boy just wanting to be loved, but instead he felt like he was rejected, and now he's angry and not wanting to be involved in the relationship. There's an amazing compassion if we can see that in the other as well. Are there ways that we can help somebody's thinking that I'm with? Can I help bring them into this safer space? I think we can by bringing the same attitude of open, non-judgmental, 
uh, curiosity and and this uh, sense of awareness and and uh, flexibility so that the real core of of all of this message is being more psychologically flexible of being able to turn towards some of the things that we've been turning away from but do it in a way that gives us the flexibility to take multiple pathways from it so if if you actually listen more deeply for example asking uh, someone who's really struggling about this about a particular thought or something about their own emotional experience about you know what a what does that remind them of? How long has that been going on? Are there other places this shows up? Uh, what could we do when in a couple that we're in that space that would be healthy and moving us towards what we really value as a couple? Mm. So we can play this out at the group level. You can do the same thing. In fact, we've taken acceptance and commitment therapy and put it into organizations and businesses and schools and we find that the very same principles apply at the level of the group and the organization. If you're managing somebody in your work environment and you give them no place to put difficult emotions or thoughts, uh, you've actually created disempowered workers who are going to be less effective for you. Which, which is, I guess, I mean, that's the, the, I guess the concept of acceptance theory is if I don't feel accepted, I'm, I'm going to shut down, reject, pull away, disconnect? Exactly. And so psychologically flexible workers who are more open and more able to redirect attention towards meaning and purpose, towards values, the values of the business organization, etc., are empowered workers. And so this acceptance doesn't mean um, tolerance or resignation. It doesn't mean accepting behavior that's unacceptable. Yeah, it doesn't mean agreement. It doesn't mean agreement. It means starting where you are with your history, which includes painful moments and difficult thoughts, and to do that with a sense of openness, uh, curiosity, uh, and being able then to start from uh, a solid foundation of it's okay to be me and it's okay to start from where I am. Mm. And then let's find what we can do in the world of behavior to really build the kind of lives that we want to live as individuals, as couples, and as in our work environments and our churches, our schools, etc. Yeah. Because we do, we, we seem to be, and maybe this is part of our human nature, but it's also, I guess, part of our stinking thinking that we've got um, sometimes, is that I don't, I almost don't want to hear what you're saying because what you did was so wrong. But I can go back and understand and understand and show acceptance and love for their, I mean, I'll probably agree with a lot of their emotional turmoil. Or even just not even agree, but I can I can understand it and I can empathize with it, and that doesn't mean the outcome of what they did is right either. Right, well, but it, but it opens it, them up. It isn't just it isn't just the disagreement. Sometimes we see in others the weaknesses that we have, and uh. we've noticed that people who sometimes are very critical about certain features of others, these are things that are in the shadows in the in their own. Uh, psychological closets. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's there's this uh, dumbing down of awareness even of our own uh, histories and, and weaknesses and difficulties and struggles when, when we fail to listen with compassion to the struggles of uh, others. But that doesn't mean that we lose judgment, as you say, about the end product. And so if we're going to empower each other to focus on what's important and get our behavior linked to that, it's better to do that by starting where we are, and we're whole human beings 
uh, with a history. But we can carry that forward one step at a time into a direction that will lead us. None of us are finished products, and none of us are about to win a prize for Mm -hmm. uh, how great and grand we are. We're we're a work in progress, and it's it's more the ability to continuously reorient. And so that these, these techniques of diffusion and acceptance are not ends in themselves. They're so that we can reorient towards uh, values and purpose. Mm. It really, uh, it's profound. And I, I see it with so many in my own life. I see it with myself. And I've always tried to wonder how I, how I, how I slow it down. But what I hear you saying is the number one key is just start noticing the pre-feeling, I guess, the pre-thought that precedes the the thought and just start being in that space and being open to looking at it. If I could send you uh, uh, away with a, uh, an image for how to do that. Yeah, yeah. Some of these things have such a long history, and you you mentioned, uh, you know, sometimes if you can see, you know, that's uh, the person in front of you who's making mistakes or as a five-year-old boy, do that with yourself. I mean, you take some of these difficult thoughts and feelings that back have a history, the ones that are really hard for us tend to be old. And put, take a little moment to imagine yourself as young as you can go, that issue is still there or beginning. And take the critical thought. You know, you're no good, you always screw up, nobody will ever love you, whatever. And take it all the way down to yourself as a child, picture yourself in front of yourself, and have that kid you imagine say that same words in the child's voice mm. and my guess is you're not going to want to slap them you're not right. going to want to you know shake them you're not going to want to wag a finger at them you're probably more like wanting to hug the, the uh, a kid who's you know dealing with something that's difficult well then bring that same posture to yourself you're a whole human being you know you belong here you're you're a valid human being and and then don't stop there. From there, now let's move and reorient towards that point in the distance that we want to head towards and walk together. Mm. But bring the kid with you. Don't uh, don't leave him behind. Yeah. Even if he if, if he has some wounds and difficult thoughts. Because the kid will just keep making issues for you anyway. <laughs> you got to. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna come along like the kids <laughs> in the back seat of the car on a family vacation, and they're gonna keep going. Good, bad, and indifferent. Uh, exactly. If we can bring a posture of, uh, of of kindness to it, and catch these early thoughts before we get into the automatic pilot mode, um, then you got some hope. Stephen C. Hope Hayes. We have more choice. Thank you so much for your uh, your insight. Great insight. And again, everybody, go look at the website stephenchayes.com. Continue looking into his books as well. Uh, it's it's we got to get on these thoughts and uh, not do it in a you know in a fearful way, just understanding openness. Look for the little child. We'll take a break. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Because it doesn't come with a handbook, you need some tools, right? Well, we just heard some some wonderful advice about how to rethink your thinking. And 
there's something inherent and I think essential uh, as all of us. What we're assuming then is that we have a choice on our thinking. But what the good doctor Stephen Hayes was just teaching us is you only have a choice if you if you recognize the choice. If you wait too long and allow the thought to just you know jump in the sled and start its way down the hill, there's a point that you're not going to turn that around. The speed's going to pick up, and uh, the grooves may already be cut for the sled, and you're just going to follow the last 500 paths that you've taken. If you want to create the new thought, you have to eventually recognize the stinking thinking. You got to recognize where it's uh, where you're having the thought that maybe you don't want to have. And a key point is don't don't freak out about it. Right? Don't get so caught up like I got to stop. I got to stop it. Oh my heavens! Because I think that very energy, that emotion, is what's going to drive the thought more chemical. Remember, your thoughts bring chemistry. So if I ask you to think of somebody that hurt you or offended you as a child, can you think of somebody? Can you think of somebody that made you feel less than or demeaned or somebody who hurt your feelings in high school or junior high? If you can still remember the thought and have the feelings, it's because thoughts have feelings and chemistry and recipes of chemistry associated with each thought. Those thoughts are stored. They're called scripts. And once you, once you kind of inject emotion into a thinking pattern, like somebody that is sinning, doing something that they believe they shouldn't be doing or knowing they shouldn't be doing, they might start building every time they do an act, look at something they shouldn't look at. They might then create a reaction like, oh, man, God's going to be mad. I'm so bad. And they get in and they take all of that emotion and they pile it back onto the thought. And it just keeps compounding the issue, compounding it, digging it deeper, making it deeper, harder to get out of. So at some point, we don't need you to beat yourself up. I honestly believe if your God, if he were sitting next to you when you committed that mistake or that sin or whatever you want to call it, your God wouldn't just sit there and induce a lot of horrible feelings on you. Your God would just love you, right? And bring some peace to you. (sighs) Not that you're perfect, but that you're loved. And once you could probably feel that feeling that you're loved – then we can go and evaluate the thought. And you might start to recognize that before the thought, there was a, there was a, there was a subtle pre-thought feeling. One of the things that we've been taught a lot uh, from some of the professors here at BYU about, for example, pornography addiction, is that two of the biggest drivers of the addiction are anxiety and uh, boredom. So if you have a little anxiety on board, that may create the thought – that maybe we ought to go do looking, go start looking at some porn, which then creates feelings, which then drives action. Or boredom. Hey, there's nothing going on here. Maybe I ought to go look at that thing. That, And then off we go. Part of what we want to do is not just add on a ton of negativity and a, ne- a bunch of guilt and pain. What we might want to do is just recognize what is the pre-thought, what are the th- thoughts you have, And then, like our good doctor was telling us, maybe turn it into a song, maybe make it funnier, maybe do something to, you know, get rid of the 
emotional tension so we don't just gang up and drive these things deeper. Anyway, it's just an idea, right? But it's an idea that can make us better. Know that your thoughts are driven by your echoes of your history. And those echoes aren't going away, but they are yours. You're here on this earth to act and not just be acted upon, even by your history that was misunderstood by a five-year-old boy. It's time to act. Let's start trying. Start making fun of our thoughts a bit. This is The Matt Townsend Show. 